And before we start our second hour, actually, would you join me in a word of prayer? Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, truly, there is no one like you. There is no one like our God. You are singular. You are disparate. You are one of a kind. You are transcendent. And Lord, we come to worship you here this morning. We come to learn about who you are first and foremost. We come wanting and desiring and thirsting to know you. So as we open your word in this hour, may you come and meet us. May you show us who you are. May you teach us about yourself. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The ceiling of the Sistine Chapel was painted by Michelangelo from 1508 to 1512. It is perhaps the most famous painting in Western history, rivaled only by the Mona Lisa. In the most famous section of this most famous painting, God is depicted as reaching his right hand out to Adam, who is reaching his left hand out to God. Adam is pictured as weak, feeble, frail, just formed out of the dust of the earth, barely able to lift his hand, whereas God is pictured as strong, mighty, able, taking the initiative to reach out to Adam. God and Adam in this picture are not equal. They are not on the same level. They're not shaking hands as two human beings would, but rather God is reaching down to Adam. Now, this illustration by Michelangelo shows us and teaches us things that we have actually been talking about already. Last time we met, we answered the most fundamental question of them all. Is there a God? Does God exist? And we saw that the answer is, indeed he does. There is a God. God exists. Well, this morning I'd like to ask the next question. Now that we know there is a God, is it even possible to know this God? Can we even know God? That's what I'd like to answer this morning. Here's a roadmap for this morning. Today I'd like to cover first the knowability of God. Second, the incomprehensibility of God. Third, the introduction to the divine attributes, the attributes of God. And fourth, we will close by answering the question, why should we study the attributes of God? First, let's talk about the knowability of God. We have to state right off the bat, that it is possible to know God. The knowledge of God is possible. But if we are to know God, it must be because God has revealed himself to us. And we talked about this last week. If we are to know anything about him, God must reveal himself to us. Now, there are many things that Michelangelo got theologically wrong on his painting of the Sistine Chapel. But there's one thing he got right. We, like Adam, are weak feeble, frail. We can barely lift a hand when it comes to knowing God. But God is mighty, active, and strong, and God takes the initiative to reach down to us. We as human beings cannot step out of the finite into the infinite. We cannot step out of humanity into divinity. We need God to reach out and touch us. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus says, No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. If you want to know God, God must reveal himself to you. In fact, knowing God pleases God. Hosea 6.6 6, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, says Yahweh, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God 
wants us to know him. God desires us to know him. God delights in us knowing him. It's not only possible, it's actually what God wants. God doesn't want religiosity or tradition or practices for the sake of religion. God wants us to know him. Furthermore, knowing God is why Jesus came. The very reason that Jesus Christ came to this earth is for us to know God. 1 John 5.20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Jesus Christ, God of very God, second person of the Trinity, was born in a manger and lived amongst his creation so that we could know God. Lastly, knowing God is the meaning of eternal life. It is the essence of salvation. John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is. Eternal life is not just a length of life. Eternal life is a quality of life. Not only will we live forever, we will live forever knowing God truly and intimately. It is the essence of eternal life, to know God. So we can know something about God. God is knowable. But then the question remains, how much can we know about God? Hardly anything? Everything? On one level, we say that God is knowable. That is, we can actually know God. Yet on another level, we must say that God is incomprehensible. That is, we cannot possibly ever fully and exhaustively know everything there is to know about God. The great Princeton theologian, in fact, America's first great systematic theologian, Charles Hodge, said this about the incomprehensibility of God. When it is said that God can be known, it is not meant that he can be comprehended. To comprehend is to have a complete and exhaustive knowledge of an object. God is past finding out. We cannot understand the Almighty unto perfection. Our knowledge of God is partial and inadequate. There is infinitely more in God than we have any idea of. And what we do know, we know imperfectly. He is God incomprehensible. Just look at the testimony of Scripture. Psalm 145, verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 147, verse 5, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Paul in Romans eleven thirty three 33 says of the incomprehensibility of God, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Brothers and sisters, do you see, do you get a sense of the enormity, the immensity, the vastness, the incomprehensibility of our God? I'd like to think about this from a different perspective, from a different angle. Not only can we not know everything that there is to know about God, But we can never know fully and exhaustively any one single thing about God. For instance, we can know something of the love of God. But we will never truly grasp and plumb the depth of that love. We can know something of the power of God. But we will never exhaustively fully comprehend the extent of that power. We can never truly understand even any one single thing about God to the fullest extent. He is God incomprehensible. So why can we not know everything there is to know about God? 
Why is that just not even possible? Well, simply put, God is one of a kind. God is singular. God is disparate. God is foreign. God is unique. His otherness prevents us from fully comprehending him. Tozer says, the child, the philosopher, and the religionist have all one question. What is God like? Answer, God is not like anything. That is, he is not exactly like anything or anybody. Isaiah 46 verse 9 says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. There is no one like God. There is nothing like God. In all of our life, in all of our experience, in all of this earth, there is nothing and no one like our God. He's incomparable. God might be similar to things that we know, but he isn't exactly like those things. For example, let's look at Ezekiel 1, verse 4 and following. And I want you to notice the language of the prophet Ezekiel. Notice how he tries to convey what he sees. He tries to pinpoint for us the scene that is unfolding before his very eyes. And yet, his language always falls short of conveying and pinpointing exactly what he sees. Because what he sees isn't exactly like anything. It's not like anything he's ever seen before. Listen to the language. Ezekiel 1.4. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal. Within it, there were figures resembling four living beings. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. Now over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal. And listen to Ezekiel as he gets closer and closer to the throne of God. His language becomes even more unsure, even more uncertain. Ezekiel 1.26. Now above, now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne. He doesn't even say there's a throne. He says there's something resembling a throne. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. From the appearance of his loins and upward, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. The appearance of the likeness? He's trying to tell us something, and yet his language always falls short. He can't convey exactly what he sees. Tozer says about this scene, strange as this language is, it does not create the impression of unreality. One gathers that the whole scene is very real but entirely alien to anything men know on earth. So in order to convey what he sees, the prophet must employ such words as likeness, appearance, as it were, and the likeness of the appearance. This is the, this is the nature of dealing with something so foreign, so unique, so one of a kind, so singular, something that we have never seen before, that no eye has seen and no ear has heard. God is one of a kind. He is God incomprehensible. Another reason we can't fully know God is because he's simply higher than we are. He's transcendent compared to us. Isaiah 55 verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So not only is God so different from us, he's also so much higher than us. He's so transcendent compared to us. He's so much higher and he's so much greater than we are that our puny minds cannot even grasp who he is. 
Thirdly, we can't fully know God because God is infinite and we are finite. Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth from the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is everlasting. We are not. God is eternal. We are not. God is infinite. We are not. How can we who are finite ever grasp the depth or the extent of something that is infinite? We never will. We never will. Another reason we can't comprehend God fully, and this is my favorite one, is that God does not reveal everything there is to know about himself. God keeps secrets from us. Deuteronomy 29.29, the secrets of God belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. Now that's just fantastic. God, in his own way, in his own right, keeps secrets from us. That's okay. Because that's what it means to be God. God has that right. Sometimes, God doesn't tell you why things happen the way they do. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that in the book of Job, Job never finds out why he suffered? By the end of the book, Job still does not know of the heavenly encounter between Satan and God. Because God never tells him. The secrets of God belong to God. But the things revealed belong to us. And that is what we should focus on. That is what we should draw our attention to. The revealed will of God. The revelation of God. Now this is important. The incomprehensibility of God is important. Because as you can imagine, some think they can know everything about God. Hegel, the philosopher said, God in fact exists to us only insofar as he is known. Hmm. There are some schools of theology, such as the speculative school and other ancient philosophies that have espoused that we can know everything that there is to possibly know about God. Of course, the Bible says that's foolishness. Let me ask you, would you even want a God that you could know absolutely everything about. We don't even know everything about ourselves. We don't even know everything about our spouse. We don't even know everything about our best friend. If you could know everything that there was to possibly know about God, that would be a very small God. But brothers and sisters, we do not worship a small God. Our God is big. Our God is very, very Now, I want us to think about the incomprehensibility of God from a different perspective. This morning, Pastor Isaiah in his sermon mentioned heaven, the ultimate joy, the fullness of heaven. And truly, it will be the fullness of joy. I'd like to think about it from the perspective of what is called the perpetual novelty. Now, think about it. We are finite. God is infinite. In heaven, that will not change. We will still be finite in heaven in the sense that we don't all of a sudden become God. We remain humans, though we will be glorified, but we will remain finite. So what this means is that every day in heaven, we will continue to learn something new about God. Every single day in heaven, we will come to learn some deeper, intimate knowledge about the person of God for all of heaven, for all of eternity, for all of our everlasting life. We will learn some fresh, intimate knowledge of the Lord our God. Heaven will be a perpetual novelty. John Piper says, Heaven will be a never-ending 
ever-increasing discovery of more and more of God's glory with greater and ever greater joy in him. If God's glory and our joy in him are one, and yet we are not infinite as he is, then our union with him and the all-satisfying experience of his glory can never be complete, but must be increasing with intimacy and intensity forever and ever. The perfection of heaven is not static, nor do we see at once all there is to see, for that would be a limit on God's glorious self-revelation and therefore his love. Yet we do not become God. Therefore, there will always be more, and the end of increased pleasure in God will never come. Every single day in heaven, you will learn something more about God. Therefore, every single day in heaven, you will have more to praise about God. Therefore, every single day in heaven, you will have deeper joy in God. Heaven will not be boring. Heaven will be perpetually new. So after all this, the key statement in the history of the church is this. God is incomprehensible, but knowable. We can know him, though we cannot know everything that there is to know about him. Now you're thinking, that's really straightforward. I mean, that just makes a lot of sense. That couldn't possibly be controversial, could it? Well, unfortunately, there is a movement in the church today which bases itself entirely on a skewed understanding of the incomprehensibility of God. You may have heard of this movement. It is called the Emerging Church Movement. The Emerging Church, at its root, is based fundamentally on a distortion of the incomprehensibility of God. The Emerging Church Movement bases itself on postmodernism, the denial of absolute truth, the denial of absolute knowledge. The postmodern person says, well, we can't really know truth. There's no such thing as absolute truth. So your truth is as good as mine. There are no absolutes. The emerging church then has adopted this very view when it comes to the doctrine of God. The emerging church has a hermeneutic called the hermeneutic of humility. Hermeneutic of humility teaches that when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to Scripture, we can't actually know what Scripture is saying. I mean, after all, God is so transcendent. God is so infinite. God is so incomprehensible. So how can we, puny human beings, ever even understand what the Bible says? We never could. They say, no matter how much you study it, how can you be so proud as to think that you actually know what the Bible is saying? How can you be so proud as to stand up in that pulpit and, thus, and say, thus saith the Lord, with any degree of certainty or dogmatism? They say, how can you be so proud as to think that you actually know God? You're just one puny person with one perspective. The emerging church has taken the doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God and stretched it to its extreme. They say that since God is incomprehensible, we cannot know anything about God at all. Instead of saying that God is incomprehensible but knowable, they say that God is incomprehensible and unknowable. We can never know God. Now this has led to all sorts of phenomena within the emerging church movement. One of them is the phenomenon of ecumenicity or an ecumenical spirit. The emerging church has reached out to all the other religions of the world and said, we need to bring in the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Muslims, the Catholics. We need all the other religions of the world because we can't really know truth. Your truth is as good as mine. And everybody's truth is equal to mine. Therefore, we all need each other to find out the real truth. 
We need everybody else's perspective to find out what truth really is. We need every other religion to find out who God really is. But could you ever imagine, for instance, in God's word, the prophet Elijah sitting down and dialoguing with the prophets of Baal and saying, you know, I was, I was thinking about calling fire down from heaven, but then I realized, you know, we should just dialogue about this because I'm sure that your understanding of Yahweh is as good as my understanding of Yahweh. Could you ever imagine Elijah doing that? No. Underneath it all, this is just another form of pluralism. All roads lead to God. You may have heard or may not have heard of an illustration, a parable, that has gone around within the, even the evangelical church today, depicting that we are all different religions with just one aspect of reality. And we just perceive it differently. Whereas we need everybody to find out the truth. It's the parable of the blind men and the elephant. And it goes something like this. There are different variations of this, but this is the most basic one. Six blind men encounter an elephant, but they have no idea that they are touching an elephant. The first goes up to its trunk, and he feels the trunk and says, oh, this is a palm tree. The second blind man goes up to its side and says, well, this is a rough wall. The third one goes up to the tail and pulls on it and says, well, I'm feeling a rope and so on and so forth. And all of the blind men think that their interpretation of reality is correct. Whereas the whole time, they realize that they just have one portion, one piece, one aspect of the truth. And in fact, all of them are wrong. Because none of them even realize they are touching an elephant. It's not a rough wall. It's not a rope. It's not a palm tree. It's an elephant. And so in the end, all of the blind men need each other to figure out this is an elephant. So in the same way, the emerging church argues that we all touch God in a specific but not complete way. And we all need each other to figure out who God really is. Well, that's a nice parable. It's a nice illustration. But the postmodern parable breaks down if the elephant speaks out and says, I am an elephant. That is revelation. If the elephant tells you that he's an elephant, you have no excuse for thinking he's a rough wall or a rope or a palm tree. The elephant is telling you what he is like. Likewise, we base our faith on divine revelation. That God is who he says he is in his word. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The hermeneutic of humility sounds very holy and humble, but what they are really saying is, God can't make himself clear. God can't speak. That when it comes to revealing himself, God can't make it understandable. God can't get across to us those facts. Brothers and sisters, when God speaks in his word, he speaks loud and clear about who he is. He doesn't mumble. God speaks to us through his word. And he tells us exactly what he is like. It is possible to know the truth, even though we may not know it, exhaustively. The emerging church states that if you can't know everything, you can't know anything. You can't know anything at all. But that's a false dichotomy. I know, for instance, that I have two daughters. I know that for a fact. Yet I do not even pretend to know that I know everything about them. I don't know everything there is to know about math, but I know that two plus two equals four. I can still have accurate knowledge about something, even if I do not have exhaustive knowledge about something. So we've answered 
Several questions. Is there a God? Yes. Can we know everything there is to know about this God? No. Yet, can we still know this God? Yes. And now we ask the question, what can we know about our God? And here is where we come to the attributes of God, the divine attributes. And here is where we will be spending the rest of our series. Ryrie defines attributes as qualities that are inherent to a subject. They identify, distinguish, or analyze the subject. So an attribute is simply a descriptive truth about God, an inherent truth about God. It is a character quality, a character trait about God. It expresses what it means to be God. It expresses who our God is. Now, there are two different possible attributes, essential attributes and accidental attributes. I'd like to go through these with you. An essential attribute is something that defines the very essence or nature of a thing, such that if you remove an essential attribute, you destroy the thing. For instance, think of a triangle. A triangle is just that. It has three angles. But what if you took away one of the angles of the triangle? It is no longer a triangle. The three angles are essential attributes of a triangle. A triangle must have three angles in order for it to be a triangle. If you take one of them away, you destroy the triangle. And so it is with essential attributes. You cannot remove an essential attribute without destroying that entity. The other kind of attribute is accidental attributes. And accidental attributes can be changed without destroying the entity. For instance, if I decided one day to wake up and dye my hair gold, that would not change who I am. I am still Ben Winarco, even if I have flowing golden locks of hair. Hair color is not an essential attribute. It is an accidental attribute. You can change an accidental attribute without destroying the entity, without destroying the thing. I'm not going to dye my hair gold, by the way, just in case you were worried. I want to make this clear. God's attributes are essential attributes. You cannot take away attributes of God without talking about an entirely different God. Malachi 3.6 says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Now the point of all this discussion is this. The world today treats God's attributes as if they were accidental attributes. They treat God as if you could take away any attribute you want. You could pick and choose whichever attribute you want. And yet the world today is gravely mistaken. God's attributes are not accidental attributes. They are essential attributes. So when you hear a church saying, well, God is so merciful. He's so loving. He lets everybody into heaven no matter what you do, no matter what you believe, because God is not a God of wrath. Realize we are talking about a God that is made in man's image, not the true God of the Bible. Or I remember one of my classmates in med school, professing Christian, we were talking about God, and he said to me, I could never worship a God who sought glory for himself. That would be an incredibly selfish God. My God does not ever seek glory for himself. And you realize, we are talking about entirely different gods. You remove an essential attribute from God, you are talking about a God made in man's image. 
God's attributes are essential to who he is. You cannot pick and choose which attributes you want. This is simply who God is. So let's talk about the attributes of God. Let's talk about, even get into our heads, the concept of an attribute of God. Here's a summary statement, and I challenge anyone to find a more succinct, more powerful summary of the doctrine of God. The 1689 London Baptist Confession, Faith, says in chapter 2, paragraph 1, The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Now we will spend the next few months unpacking just what this is talking about, the attributes and the person of God. Now when we speak about the attributes of God, it is helpful for us to classify the attributes because it helps us to form a mental framework on how to think about the attributes of God. But how do we classify them? Well, it's not as easy as you might think. Actually, it's quite difficult. Throughout the history of the church, there have been many ways to classify the attributes, and none of these is perfect. All of them fall short. And I just pulled out a bunch of systematic theologies and did a survey of them to show us the difference of opinion on how we should classify the attributes. Classic Lutheran classification is to see them as positive versus negative. Arminians usually classify them as absolute versus relative. Millard Erickson, a Baptist theologian, and Alvin McLean, dispensational, classify them as attributes of greatness and attributes of goodness. Very interesting. Roman Catholic theology has traditionally divided God's attributes into attributes of being, for instance, eternity, independence, self-existence, and attributes of activity, such as wrath or power. John Frame, if you know John Frame, he sees things in a Trinitarian standpoint, and he divides things into three. God's attributes of goodness, knowledge, and power. For our series we will be using the classic reformed classification, the incommunicable versus communicable attributes of God. This is the approach of Burkhoff, Bavink, Shedd, Grudem, Culver. There's many, many, many others. Now, incommunicable attributes are attributes which God does not share or communicate to others. Examples would be God's independence. God is completely independent. He is dependent on nothing and no one for his existence. He doesn't share that with us. God's eternity. God is eternal. We are not. God is immutable. He does not change. We do. God's omnipresence. God is present everywhere, but we are not. The others then fall into the communicable attributes, those attributes which God shares with us, though to a far lesser degree. For instance, wrath. Love, mercy, kindness, gent uh, graciousness, truth. Now, I want us to keep in mind as we talk about the attributes that the attributes should, in, in actuality, are actually a human construct to classify them. Because in reality, there is no classification. Now, borrow this illustration from Grudem. God 
is not just a whole bunch of qualities added together. He's not just a whole bunch of attributes added together. And we should not classify him like that. Just like with each other, we do not classify each other according to our attributes. We don't say, well, Francis is peace, justice, and love, while Huey is mercy, wisdom, and power. No. We are whole beings, whole persons with character traits, with character attributes. Nor should we think about God's attributes as additions to his real being. They are not additions. They are not external. They are not added on. When we talk about the attributes, we are talking about the very person of God. We need to remember that when we look at the attributes, we're not just looking at qualities that God possesses. We are actually looking at who God is. For instance, when we say that God is righteous, we are not just saying that God possesses righteousness. We are saying that God is righteous. God is righteousness. When we say that God is just, we are not just saying that God acts justly. We are saying that God is in and of himself justice. We are talking about the very person of God. And so if you look at the diagram, all of the attributes go inside the circle. God is a whole being, a complete unified being, a complete unified person with attributes. All of these attributes describe who God is, not just how he acts. So then, why study the attributes of God. Why study them? Why spend several months in the equipping hour studying the attributes of God? Let me answer it like this. The summer after my sophomore year in college, I was studying for the MCAT, which as many of you know, is the entrance exam into medical school. And I can already see the cringe of several doctors in the room. Because as you know, studying for the MCAT is in and of itself, or it can be, a little harrowing experience. I was studying about 12 hours a day the whole summer, and in a sense, it's very nerve-wracking because, in a way, you might think about it, your entire future hinges on this one exam. So it can be a little nerve-wracking. Well, at this time, I was being discipled by a man. Some of you actually know him. His name is Waylon. And Waylon was discipling me. And if you know Waylon, you know that he would do exactly this. He gave me a list of books to read. You go, thank you, Waylon. I'm studying 12 hours a day, and you give me more homework. But these are the list of books. This is the list of books he gave me to read. Knowing God, J.I. Packer. Pleasures of God, John Piper. Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer. Pink's Attributes of God. Edwards, The End for Which God Created the World. If you know anything about these books, you know these are all books on the doctrine of God. These are all books on theology proper. These are all books on who God is. And I remember being so enamored, so engrossed with the person of God as I was digging into this stuff for the very first time, digging into theology proper for the very first time, that I would literally walk from my apartment to my MCAT class in Westwood, about a 20-minute walk, and I, was, I had my face buried in a book as I walked. I was actually crossing the street, which I don't recommend, reading the, the end for which God created the world. Because I was so engrossed with the person of God. And you know what got me through that summer? You know what got me through all the anxiety, all the stress? It was the study of God. It was to know God. And I still remember the very first time that I read this statement by A.W. Tozer, sitting outside of Young Research Library on the north campus of UCLA where the true nerds study. I was sitting on a bench taking a break from my studies when I read this statement by Tozer on the very first page of the knowledge of the holy and it hit me like a ton of bricks and I've kept it with me ever since. Tozer writes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
Man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. There is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. If Tozer is right, and I truly believe that he is, then first and foremost, we must always start with God. First and foremost, we must always start with the doctrine of God. We must always start with who God is. We must always start with theology. We must always start with theology proper. This means marriage is primarily a theological issue. Singleness is primarily a theological issue. Pride is primarily a theological issue. Humility is primarily a theological issue. Suffering is primarily a theological issue. When you struggle with frustration or anger or lust or bitterness or jealousy, the answer is always first and foremost to go back to who God is. Theology is life. All of life relates to theology. All of life is theology, either applied or not applied. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said 99.99% of our troubles as Christians is because we do not know God. All of your struggles are not about the struggles themselves. All of your struggles are whether or not you know God. Brothers and sisters, why do you think that the Lord's Prayer starts with hallowed be your name and it does not start with give us this day our daily bread it starts with god it always starts with god listen carefully no church will ever grow higher than its view of god no christian will ever grow higher than his or her view of god that's why we're doing this series you want to grow as a church? Cornerstone. Cornerstone Bible Church. I ask you, do you want to grow as a church? Know God. Do you want to, know, do you want to grow as a Christian? Know God. Do you want to fight sin in your life? Know God. Do you want to get through this trial that you are going through? Know God. The answer is always to go back to who God is. How you understand God and his attributes has immense practical implications. For instance, let's look at the attributes themselves again. Let's see how the attributes of God or your understanding of the attributes of God will affect your daily life. For instance, let's say some tribal person in the heart of South America thinks that God is defined by the attribute of wrath. In fact, God's wrath is so big that it overshadows all of God's other attributes, such that you can't even notice them anymore. God is primarily a God of wrath. How will this person live his daily life? He'll be tiptoeing around the moral imperatives of God because he's afraid of making God angry. He's not very likely to go to parties and get drunk and sleep around. He probably won't be a very happy person. He probably won't rejoice in the Lord, as we heard this morning, because he's always thinking God is angry. God is wrathful. On the flip side, think of modern, postmodern America today. What would you say is the most dominant attribute of God to postmodern America today? Love or mercy, right? In fact, God is such a loving God that it overshadows all of God's other attributes. So this person who thinks that God is defined primarily by the attribute of love, well, they'll be willing to go sleep around, get drunk, cheat on tests, cheat on taxes, to varying degrees, of course. But I could do whatever I want 
because God is such a loving God. How you understand God's attributes will affect your daily life. Pink says, the fairest face on earth with the most comely features would soon become ugly and unsightly if one member continued growing while others remained undeveloped. Beauty is primarily a matter of proportion. Thus it is with the word of God. Its beauty and blessedness are best perceived when its manifold wisdom is exhibited in its true proportion. Here is where so many have failed in the past. A single phase of God's truth has so impressed this man or that that he has concentrated his attention upon it almost to the exclusion of everything else. Brothers and sisters, we need to have a biblically balanced view of the attributes of God. We must realize that one attribute never contradicts another. God's attributes must be understood in proportion to one another. So as we close, I ask you, where do we see the greatest display of the attributes of God? Where do we see the greatest display of the divine attributes? It is in the cross. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest expression of all of God's attributes. At the cross, wrath met mercy. Righteousness met goodness. Justice met grace. It is at the cross where we can flee God's presence to judge us and flee into his presence to bless us. It is the cross which manifests the wisdom and knowledge of God to save sinners. It is the cross that demonstrates God's utmost holiness against sin and his power to conquer sin. It is the cross which was planned from all eternity past, and it is the cross which will have an impact for all eternity future in heaven or in hell. It is the cross which supremely shows the unspeakable love of God and the utmost glory of God. It is the cross which allows us to trust God with the destination of our souls in the gospel. So brothers and sisters, as we close this morning, think of the cross. Think of Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen for you. And behold your God. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you, Lord, simply for who you are. Lord, help us to have an accurate view of you. Not just in the series as it unfolds over the next few months, but in our everyday practical lives. Help us to know you to know you truly and intimately. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.